The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Well, as you listen to this story, you see, as last week was, just a, a scene that is gruesome, that is painful, that is gory as we are approaching the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. There's, a, there's an occurrence in this passage that we read of a word that occurs in these 18 verses that is occurring way too often. It's a certain pronoun that is used 38 times. It's the simple pronoun, him. And this in itself, this word isn't really of any great uh, theological significance. It doesn't, the occurrence of it doesn't point us to a significant theological truth, but it does help us to see the author's intent. What is Matthew, the author, wanting us to know in this story by using this so often? He wants us to look at Jesus. You can go ahead and put up that slide now. As we look at this whole passage just at once, just in this yellow, just look at this pronoun, this single pronoun that is used all of these times. Sometimes in a verse you see it three or four times. He keeps using this word, him, and him, and him. And even when he's talking about Simon the Cyrene, he doesn't even use the pronoun him. He says, this man, to not distract us from the real point of this story. Who should we be thinking about in this story? Who is the subject of this story. It is him. It is Jesus. It's obvious Matthew wants us to think about Jesus. What is happening to Jesus? What are they doing to Jesus? What is said to Jesus? It's remarkable that the actual events of the crucifixion are, are, are so gruesome that the gospel writers do not go into explicit detail of how he was crucified. Something so horrifying 
And Matthew just skips over it all together. If you look at the other, the other gospel writers, Luke and Mark and John, you'll even see even, even more fleshed out regarding the crucifixion and, and how they crucified him. But Matthew skips over it. He merely just says, and he was crucified. Something so important. Why not talk about the crucifixion more? He doesn't mention the nails going through his hands and his feet. He doesn't mention the other forms of punishment that happened to Jesus because Matthew's intent is not to is not to talk about the crucifixion of what happened to him, but rather the meaning of it. He's wanting us to think about Jesus and the meaning of what was happening to him rather than the act itself. Began last week talking about the innocence of Christ, and we saw this before his trial before Pilate, his trial before the Sanhedrin, his trial before the crowds as they offered him up to be crucified. We talked about the innocence of Jesus and the guilt of everyone else, that there was two kinds of people in the scene there. There were, uh, there were wicked people, and then there was Jesus. And Matthew goes at great lengths to tell us that Jesus is the innocent one, that he is righteous, that he has done nothing wrong, and everyone else is, is guilty. And so Jesus takes the place of Barabbas, this, this gruesome murderer and notorious criminal. There's this great exchange that happens where Jesus takes on the sins of wicked people and offers a wicked man to go free. We continue to see this fleshed out now as Matthew continues in the story. What is the meaning of this great substitute? And what is the meaning of why Jesus here is now the focus and why he uses his pronouns so much? What happened to him and what do we get in return because of what happened to Jesus? Let's begin as we look at verse 27 as we talk through some of these things of what happened to him and how we are benefited by that. We're going to look at just a few of these First, in 27, the soldiers of the governor took Jesus to their headquarters and the whole battalion gathered around him. First, we see that Christ was terrorized, terrorized to death so that even though we face death, we can be unafraid. They gathered the whole battalion. Scholars understand that there would be no fewer than 600 Roman soldiers gathered around Jesus. Just fathom that for a moment. 600 armed men, the most skilled soldiers that the world has ever known at that time, gathered around Jesus, who has already been beaten and bloodied. Terrifying. This was not going to be a slap on the wrist. Everyone who was going to be in the vicinity to witness this knew, especially Jesus himself, that what was going to come next was they were going to kill him. 600 soldiers gathered around him. They were at war with this one man with the most terrorizing weapons. And now he stands bloodied and 600 men around him. He's had enough at this point. He has learned his lesson if they wanted to punish him, if they wanted to get a point across. It's actually already happened, but they weren't done. They wanted to strike fear into Jesus. The whole battalion, they got... All, the whole entire army, all of Pilate's army, the whole army that was there in Jerusalem was all in one place. They wanted to make sure that he was afraid and that there was no doubt who was in control here. There's no greater enemy than the Roman soldier. There's no greater, there's no greater fear 
There's no greater enemy than a, than a criminal at the time than the Roman government. Whether you were Roman or Jewish, it didn't matter. There's no greater punishment at the time than the crucifixion. They had mastered this. Maybe you've heard this before it, around Easter time that the, that the Roman soldiers had mastered the art of killing a person and doing it with maximum cruelty and pain and terror. There was no greater enemy than a Roman soldier and no greater way to die than cru by crucifixion. And what does it say that God, in his infinite wisdom, would choose to send his son at a specific place, in a specific time, in a specific era, and, and decade, and year, where in a specific region of the world, that he, that he chose to send his son into a context where his son would die in the worst way possible? What does it say about God's infinite wisdom that he would do this? He is saying that in facing the absolute worst and conquering it, that we could face anything, that we could face our worst nightmares and have the hope of triumph. There, there's no greater enemy that you and I will face than death. Death is not a friend. Death is our greatest enemy. It's our final enemy. It's our last enemy that any of us will ever face. And all of us will face that greatest enemy. And often the pain of death is, the, the actual death itself is not the greatest fear, is it? Usually the fear is the fear of death and the fear of dying and the thought of dying and the thought of our life being over and the wonder of, of how that might happen. That fear is more terrorizing than the actual act of, of, of dying. The anticipation of death is often scarier. That's why I don't go on roller coasters. I actually really like roller coasters. I actually really like roller coasters. I just hate standing, standing in line for a roller coaster. Do you know what I mean? The roller coaster is actually quite fun. It's thrilling, but standing in line for an hour, I can't bear. This is much worse. And around this time of the year, there's, there's much talk about Jesus dying. There's much talk about his, his death and his resurrection, uh, which of course is essential to our understanding of God's gospel and good news for us. But have you ever thought of the pain of facing death that Jesus must have faced at this time? being drawn out, the hours that led up to it, and the beating, and now this terror that he is facing before these 600 soldiers that he knows are about to kill him. Jesus faced the worst kind of terror and fear of death so that we, no matter what we could face, even death itself, we could be unafraid. Jesus has gone before us. He has experienced that to sympathize with us and to have triumph over our greatest enemy because he has defeated sin, he's defeated death, he has even defeated the fear of death. The fear of death, death itself, the hold that death has on a person in, in, fear, in the fear and terror of it. God has released us from that and conquered even that. He's conquered even the anticipation of our greatest enemy. This morning woke up to, to hear on the news, and maybe you even saw that dozens of Christians in Egypt were killed as, as they were worshiping on a Palm Sunday. They were worshiping together, dozens of Christians in two different churches. There was bombings, and they were killed, these Christians who were gathered, talking about Jesus riding into Jerusalem to face his death so that even though we die, we could live forever. Christians talking about this, believing in this, that death, even though it is our greatest enemy, has no hold on us. They got a, they got a 
They, they saw it firsthand. They experienced it right there. The fear, the terror that man desires to put on people, even that God has conquered. Why was Christ crucified and terrorized in such a way so that we, no matter what we would face, could have hope? Going on from here, we see in verse 28 and 29 that it goes further. The terror of death now moves to shame and mocking. We see that Christ was, was put to shame for who he really was, ironically, so that we could be accepted in spite of who we really are. He really was a king, as you look at this. They, they took his clothes off and put a robe on him. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They gave him a reed, a, a staff, a, a stick, that a, that a, like a scepter that a king would have in order to rule. They did all of these things. They mocked him, ironically, for who he truly was. They, they took off his plain clothes and they gave him royal clothes. They crowned him with a, a, a crown of thorns. They, they shouted sarcastic praises to him. Hail, King of the Jews! Don't you see that? Don't you see what they did? They were, they were shouting praises as someone would do to a rightful king, as someone would bow before a king and offer praises to the king. They were doing that sarcastically to him. How ironic. Because he truly is the king, not the sort of king that they expected him to be. All of this to exploit him, to to make fun of him, to shame him. It was meant to be sarcastic. It was meant to be like pointing a finger at someone and, and laughing at somebody. See, the, so the clothes were a prop. They were, they were an object lesson for everyone to see. A costume, a costume that ironically was representing who he really was. What was unseen was being clearly seen by all that were watching. And imagine, imagine, the shame that you and I would feel for just a day. I mean, consider like for a 24-hour period where everything that you were, truly, everything on your inside of the, the man or woman or child that you are, your deepest fears and your deepest shame, the things that you don't want anyone to know. Imagine for 24 hours, all of that was on the outside of you that was represented by a prop, by a costume, by a sign above your head that told the world who you truly were. What would yours say? What are you most ashamed about? What are you most afraid that people will come to know about you? What, if people knew about you, would use to exploit you and to make you feel shame? That you've maybe spent great time and energy concealing from the world to see. Now imagine you had to walk around with a sign above your head with neon lights that just showed everyone who you were. What would yours say? Would it say, control freak? Would it say, warrior? Would it say, addicted to pornography? Would it say, overly critical? Would it say, impatient mother? Insensitive husband? Materialistic? Lover of pleasure? Narcissistic? Impatient? What would yours say that you had to show the whole world, this is who I truly am? In secret, this is who I am. Because what is unseen is meant to be seen for everyone. That is what they're doing with Jesus, is to mock him for what he claimed to truly be. 
But God does not exploit who we truly are. Could you imagine if God gave us a sign or several signs or put a costume on us for who we truly were, who we truly are, for the whole world to see? That would be very embarrassing. He does not exploit who we really are. He was exploited. He was put to shame. He was mocked. He was laughed at. The whole world saw who he was and they laughed at him for it. He was put to shame for who he truly was so that you and I would be accepted in spite of who we truly are. Look at Colossians 1, what it says in verse 21, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. God does not accept us because of our record. This is what this is meant to say to us. He does not, ex- he does not accept us because of our record, he accepts us because, in spite of our record. And he makes us good. Jesus was shamed for who he truly was so that we could be accepted in spite of who we truly are. Let's keep going. We see that what else happened to Christ that he gives to us is, number three, Christ gave up control so that we don't have to be in control. Jesus is out of control. By the world's view of him and perspective of him, we would see Jesus as one who's losing. Jesus is losing. He is failing. He is not in control, but they are in control of him. They take off his clothes and put on his old clothes. They dress him like a child. He doesn't even do it himself. They, he, they are dressing him. Have you ever, like you dress a, a child or an infant, they are completely dependent on you. Have you ever done that with a, a grown adult? Jesus is out of control here by the world's standards. And then it says, carefully it says, I think it's intentionally, and then they led him away. They led him away to be crucified. He's being led away to death. They're dragging him. They're leading him. They are, they are taking him. He is not leading. The shepherd now has become the sheep that is going to slaughter. And we want to be in control, don't we? We want to be in control of our lives. Our, our culture trains us. Our, every, every experience that we have trains us to be controlled, to to expect what's coming, to pursue control. We're bombarded with choices throughout our life, countless choices that, makes, uh, that we make thousands of decisions a day. Thousands of, of, of desires each range from what we will wear that morning when we wake up, decisions of what we will wear to what career we will pursue. We are told to, to take control of our life, to make decisions. And if we speak 21st century Western culture into this text. It doesn't work. If we take our perspective of, of, of how we live our lives and to try to speak meaning into the passage, it, it falls apart because Jesus is out of control in the world's eyes and he is failing. And we would say, if we spoke our wisdom into Jesus, we would say, Jesus, get a hold of your life. Jesus, have a plan. Jesus, don't let them do this to you. And we might even join in with those who are ridiculing Jesus and saying, hey, you helped so many people, help yourself. You're the son of God. You can call down the angels and do whatever you want. Why won't you do it? 
Do you think that it's possible that the stress happening in your life right now is the result of your desire to control every circumstance of your life? Maybe the stress and worry and anxiety and anguish that you are experiencing in your life right now is coming from a desire that you have to take control of your life and to make sure that things don't happen to you that you don't want to happen to you. Because you're preaching to yourself and saying, I've got to get control of my life. I can't have surprises happen to me. I can't let anyone do to me what I don't want them to do to me. Now look at Jesus, out of control, being led away to his death. Jesus was able to give up control because he knew that God's ways are better than our ways. He knew that God's ways are better than his ways. We even, this, just in chapter 26, Jesus says, Lord, take this cup from me. If there is another way, take it away from me, but not my way, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus is saying that if it's between your will and my will, then let your will be accomplished. And Jesus knew and he trusted his father. So now Jesus is being stripped naked as a child. He is out of control. He is being led away to his death. What does that mean? It means that God's will for his life is for this to happen. And Jesus is willingly going along with it. Jesus understood that God is sovereign, that he is in control. And even though others would lead him away to be killed, that no one can lead God in a direction that God did not want to go. No one can lead God in a direction that he does not want to go. Everyone wants to be in control. You want to be in control, I want to be in control. And a lack of, of feeling in control in your life will lead to great anxiety and fear and even outbursts of anger, and yet Jesus did not do any of that. And Jesus even corrects those who even try to do that. Even when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus, Peter rushed forward with a, with a little, little sword and cut off one of the ears of the soldiers that was arresting Jesus. And Jesus picks up the ear and says, Peter, let's not do that. And he puts the ear back on the guy's head. That, that's, an ancient, that's an ancient Eastern dialect, you know. And, and, and he puts it on his ear and he puts the man's ear back on his head and says, let's not do that. That's not what's going to happen. Peter's saying, this is an accident. They're coming to rescue you, but you are our leader and our king and our sovereign God. You are you're our savior, so you can't die. And so when our expectations don't match God's promises, we take control of our lives. Because we think that either God's out of control or something is happening in the universe that God is not aware of. And so we think, I've got to get control of this. We find it hard to relax. When this happens, we take criticism and failure very badly. We become proud when we succeed or we envy the success of somebody else when they succeed. When things happen that we did not expect or don't want to happen, we, we become defensive. We try to fix it. But Jesus, trusting in the greatness of God the Father, knows that he can put his trust in God even if he is being treated like a child that has no control and being led away to his own death. Jesus does not move a finger in defense. In giving up control and being led to death, Jesus shows us how to submit our control to God, even when things are happening that we don't want to happen. He, Jesus shows us in giving up control 
to these Roman soldiers, even unto death. He shows us how to give up our control to the greatness of God, our Father, who is good, who cares for us, who is in control. God is great. God is great, and He's not great in the same way that maybe, you know, a steak is great. He's not great in the same way even that maybe your best friend or spouse is great. He is not great in the same way that like maybe this day is great. It is a beautiful morning, isn't it? God's not great in that way. He's great in a different way. He's greatly above all other greats. He's greatly above everything. Not only does he have things under control, but he is so great that he has everything under his control in such a way that he is working all things out for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He shows that by allowing his son Jesus to be led away to death. Jesus knew that. Jesus knew that, and he trusted in that. He had confidence in that, that God is so great, and he's above all other greats, that not only is he in control in this moment, but this moment, as I am being led to my death, he will use for his glory and my joy. And it's so ridiculous to hear that, as we see, yeah, but you're going to die. And Jesus says, but even then, but even then, he shows us how to give up control to the greatness of God. So Jesus gives up control so that we don't have to be in control. That's another great substitute that happens here. Not just his life for ours, but his whole life for our whole life. And every circumstance, he gave up control to show us you don't have to be in control. Next, number four, Christ lost favor with others so that we wouldn't have to fear what others might think of us. You can see this most clearly in verses 32 to 44, but it's also, but, but, but in 40 to 44, where we see the most dialogue here, the most dialogue. So the whole passage is where there's, there's not talking, there's just a, a narrative, a story going on, but here in 40 to 44, we see all this dialogue. We see people now talking to Jesus, and what are they doing? They are mocking him. The Greek word used here is only used uh, 13, well, it's used 13 times in the New Testament, and every single time it's used, it's, t- it's used for Jesus. Every single time this word is used, it's used as an act against Jesus. A good translation is, is to mock, as it's used here in this passage, but it also has this feel of to make fun of somebody. To make fun of someone. That's what they were doing. The crowds were making fun of Jesus. The tone has changed, as we saw here, and I want you to get this tone that's changed. The tone has gone from terror and anger and like a mob-like mentality of violence to now playing cruel tricks on Jesus in order to make him feel stupid. So quickly has it changed. Hey, Jesus, you look thirsty, man. Hey, you look thirsty. Let me give you something to drink. Ha <laughs> ha, it's vinegar. Psych, we got you. Hey, Jesus, if God loves you so much, why don't you call out to him? <gasps> Maybe he doesn't love you. Oh, that's sad. Maybe God, your father, doesn't care about you. Oh. Hey, Jesus, so many people love you yesterday. Where are they now? Oh, they're all gone, and you're all alone. 
That's what they're doing. They are making fun of him. It was customary to hang a sign above someone's head when they were crucified or to nail on the cross the charges that were against that person, that criminal, as a deterrent for everyone. So that if they see as they walk by the crosses and the people being crucified, they may see, you know, murderer, and they say, wow, that's what happens when you're a murderer. They may say thief. You say, okay, I, 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 don't, I don't want to do that. If that's what being a thief gets you, then I don't want to do that. Well, they hang a sign on it above his head, and, and it says... Jesus Christ, King of the Jews. We're meant to see behind the irony of this truth that Jesus is King of the Jews and King over all of creation. We're meant to see behind the irony of it to his real kingship achieved through his death. But the intention was so blatantly ironic and sarcastic, so humiliating. Being made fun of is, being made fun of is one of the most humiliating things a person can experience. Just ask a middle schooler, right? Most people would rather die. That is why bullying and, and, and ridicule might lead to self-inflicted wounds or even suicide, because many would rather die than face the pain of being made fun of. Often death and the fear of death isn't our biggest fear. Often our biggest fear is, in the eyes of others, they don't like us. And even more so that the others do not like us, they make fun of us, and we don't have a friend in the world. Often our biggest fear is ridicule from other people, the loss of favor and love from others. That's often the biggest fear that we have. What if people don't like me? And then everything that we do in our life is driven by this fear of a lack of love from others. Everything that we do is driven so that other people will like us. What we wear, what we drive, what we say, how we express our personality, it's so that, please, would you like me? Would you have favor on me? Would you think that I'm special? Even adults have this fear. It's not just a middle school thing, of course. They have the fear of, that is working out in our hearts more than we know, and it would, it's what drives our, our people-pleasing pride. It is the fear of man and the fear of losing favors with others that causes us to do so many things. It causes us to avoid confrontation. But yes, I know that this, I should talk to this person, but what if I talk to them and they end up thinking poorly of me? I can't bear that kind of thing. That's what leads us to crave approval. It leads us to become overly defensive when accused of wrongdoing. With the hint of thinking that someone is talking to us because of something we may or may not have done wrong, we have to, we have to cover all our bases. We have to explain ourselves incessantly. We have to make sure that we... Remove any doubt in that person's mind that we did something stupid. It's what makes us behave differently around different people. You know, you have your different crowds. You have your church crowd and you talk with, I'll do whatever you want me to do to make you like me. And then we have our other crowd and we say, I want, I'll do whatever you want me to do to make you like me. And then we have our work crowd and we say, I'll do whatever you want me to do to make you like me. And we don't even know who we are because we're three or four different people in different situations. That's because you're afraid of people not liking you. You're afraid of something happening to you that happened to Jesus on this day, where people make fun of you, and you lose favor of people in your life. So it leads us to pretend or hide our true self and not be honest with our sins. It's what leads us to not confess our sins to one another out of fear of what they might think. 
It's what allows us and keeps us from actually getting good healthy sleep. It, allows, it leads us to losing sleep as we play over and over and over in our heads again the conversation we had with somebody worrying how did this come off to that person what do they think of me now because of what I said you ever have those sleepless nights I have what if I was misunderstood what if I was misperceived what if I you know did I put the emphasis on this word or the wrong you know the wrong emphasis on that syllable you know what, what did I how are they gonna take it we say yes to everyone because we are afraid of what they might think of us if we say no. No, I can't do that. Oh. oh my goodness, I have to say yes. What if they think I'm insensitive? What if they think I'm selfish? What if they think this or that? I have to say yes. If anyone ever asks me of anything, I have to say yes. And that's a commitment we make to ourselves every day. Don't ever disappoint anyone. You may have had the reputation, you may have the reputation of being the nicest person the nicest person in the room, the nicest person in your workplace, the nicest person in, in the world, and you love the fact that you are the nicest person. That might not be a good thing. You see, of course, of course, being a nice person and being kind is a godly virtue and something we should pursue, but how much of that desire to be nice is motivated by a fear of losing favor with others or out of a prideful desire for the praise of others? You're driven, instead of not an authenticity and love for God in truth and love to others, you are driven now by a desire to be praised. You're driven by your own glory. I'm going to be nice so that people would say, you are so nice. And we will say, oh, stop. And at that moment, what we're thinking in our mind and in our heart is, that's the very reason I live, is to know that that's how you feel about me. In the most humiliating fashion, Jesus lives out our greatest nightmare. Because really, our greatest nightmare is often not death itself. Our greatest nightmare is this. Losing praise. Losing glory. Losing friends. Losing esteem of others. Losing our reputation. Losing favor among the most powerful and the common person alike. Who is here ridiculing people? The religious leaders and the common people, and everyone in between, everyone that is there is ridiculing Jesus. He becomes the laughing stock of Jerusalem with not a friend in the world. And there are behaviors and attitudes in your, there are behaviors and attitudes in your life right now that are motivated by a desire to prevent that very thing from happening to you. You should know if that is you, you should know that Jesus lost the favor of man. He lost the favor of man in, in truly epic fashion, didn't he? I mean, let's face it, this isn't going to happen to us like it happened to Jesus. Likely, you will not be gathered in the town center and the whole town called to a meeting and where they all look at your barely naked body and laugh at you. That likely won't happen. I pray that it doesn't. It happened to Jesus. And it happened to Jesus so that we would never have to fear what others might think of us. Isn't that something? And is, that's the truth. It, well, this is just a bad thing that happened. No, Jesus was lost favor with man so that by living the life that you and I should have lived and dying the death that we deserve to die, by going to the cross and dying for our sins, he would take that shame so that the only thing that matters for, to us in our life is what God thinks of us. 
that we have his favor, we don't need the favor of other people. We don't need the praise of man. We don't need the esteem of others. Because when we have God's favor, we have everything. We don't earn God's favor. Now, if we had to earn God's favor, then yes, this is really bad news. If we had to earn God's favor, if God's favor is poured out on us based on our character, by our record, by our distancing ourselves from our former sins, then we should be afraid. And our biggest fear should be, I hope people don't laugh at me and find out that I'm not a great person. But if we don't earn God's favor, if God's favor is gracious, if it is poured out to sinners, as the Bible describes, if Jesus died in spite of our failure and gives us love in spite of that, then his opinion is the only one that matters. And when he says he loves us, when he calls us his beloved, when he pours out favor, when his evaluation of us and esteem of us is just the same as his love for his very son, Jesus Christ, then we have nothing to be afraid of. Favor is exactly what God pours out on us through Jesus Christ. We spend our, our lives trying to prove that we're worth something that, so that people will pay attention to us, that we are special. We spend our lives working ourselves up our, the corporate ladder so that people will look at us and say, wow, you did all that? And we say, oh, it was nothing. We live our lives so that others can look into our life and see that we are good, that we are valuable, that we're worth something, that we're not a screw-up or a failure. But once we realize that we can never earn God's favor, that we don't have to try harder, that we can't try harder, that we can't just be better for God, that we can't even really prove ourselves to God, but that through Jesus we receive it anyways, well, we step then into this glorious freedom of His grace. Glorious freedom to live our lives true and unafraid. Because Jesus here is, has given us what we don't deserve so that we don't have to continually beat ourselves up over what people think of us. So we chase money. We often chase sex and power and recognition. And we chase all sorts of things because we believe that they will give us what we're looking for. We believe at the root of it that these things are better than God. But we don't have to prove ourselves anymore. We can have strength and security and fulfillment and identity in the unshakable, never-ending grace of Jesus. So with all of this, what does Matthew ultimately want us to know about Jesus? It's that Jesus is our hero, the one who took on our worst nightmare in order to secure for us the forever and unchanging love of God. And in the most brutal fashion, Jesus answers our shame by being shamed. He answers our fear of God's judgment by being judged. He answers our fear of rejection by being rejected himself. He answers our feeling of loneliness by being forsaken and alone. And he goes through all of that because the gospel is not narrow. We think of the gospel as narrow when we think of it as merely God died for us to give us eternal life. And it is awesome. That is the gospel. But it is much more than that. The gospel is the good news for all of our bad news. It's the setting right of all that is broken about us. The gospel is for the whole person, for our whole life. And Jesus did all of this to set us free with the grace of God. 
Let's pray.